be from the book of John, chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. It's an exciting thing to study God. As a matter of fact, you couldn't spend your time any better than to study who God is, what he's like, what he's doing in history. There's no better way to spend your time and spend your energy than thinking about who God is. Since the Holy Spirit is divine, since he is God, Acts chapter five, verses three and four, it's an exciting thing to study about the Holy Spirit. Not just because there's a lot of controversy surrounding a lot of teachings about the Holy Spirit historically, but because when we honestly come to the Bible and let it teach us about who the Holy Spirit is, what he's all about, there's just something about this kind of study that can enrich our faith and that can help us to understand what God desires of us even better. And so as we continue our series of studies on Sunday nights about the Holy Spirit and his work, I just wanna remind you that the Holy Spirit is not just somebody who shows up in the New Testament. He was present throughout the Old Testament, even back to the creation of the world itself. And the Old Testament contains promises, many promises that God was one day going to pour out his spirit on all flesh, Joel chapter two, verses 28 through 32. And when Jesus comes to earth, as we noticed last time, Jesus' ministry is full of references to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active surrounding the conception and the birth and the announcements of who Jesus is when he comes to this world. And in the ministry of Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, so that he went about doing good. And as Jesus' earthly ministry came to a close, as was just read in John 16, verses 7 through 11, Jesus makes a promise. He says, the spirit of truth is going to come to you. He's going to convict the world of sin. One of the questions that gets asked frequently concerning the role of the Holy Spirit is, what role does the Holy Spirit have in convicting people of sin and in converting them to the gospel? What kind of role does the Spirit have? This is an important question because most of your religious neighbors do not believe what the Bible teaches about this subject. They have a very different conception, more about that in just a moment. But let me just, as we begin this study this evening, let me just define two phrases, two terms for you. In the process of somebody who is lost becoming a Christian, Someone who is going to become a Christian, who's lost, who's outside of Christ, they must be first convicted of sin. We say it this way sometimes, people will never be receptive to the good news unless they first understand the bad news. The bad news is, I'm guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3 verse 23. The bad news is that we are lost without Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. We're without hope. We're without God in the world. And people need to be convicted of that reality. 
You know, sometimes in our evangelistic approach, we skip over some of this. We don't want to talk about unpleasant things, but that's not the right approach. People need to hear and know that they have been wrong and have offended God. That's what the gospel teaches us. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, the Bible says that as Peter concluded his sermon about how the crowd that he was preaching to had murdered Jesus Christ, he said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God made both Lord and Christ, Acts 2, 36. And in verse 37, the Bible says that the people who heard Peter were cut to the heart. Remember? They were cut to the heart. They were convicted but they had not yet become Christians. They were convicted of their sin, but something else remained. If they're gonna become Christians, if they're gonna become disciples, something else has to happen. And again, in Acts 7 verse 54, as Stephen concluded his sermon, the Bible says that the people that heard Stephen, they were convicted of their sin. They were cut to the heart as well. And the Bible says, instead of asking, what shall we do? They dragged Stephen out of town and stoned him to death because they were angry at what he said. They were convicted though. They knew that what Stephen was saying was true. They didn't know anything else to do except to kill this man because they didn't like the truth about themselves. Conviction. And then the second word is conversion. And conversion has to do with two things. It has to do with turning away from sin and turning to God. In Bible studies with people, sometimes we talk about turning away from sin, and yet we don't really adequately talk about what it means to turn to God. But conversion involves both of those things. First Thessalonians 1 verse 9, you have turned from idols to serve the living God, Paul writes about his brethren in Thessalonica. In Acts 3 verse 19, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So the idea of conversion has to do with doing a 180. I'm turning away from my sinful, wicked way of living and I'm turning to God. And the question we're asking this evening is simply this, what role does the Holy Spirit have in all of that? In convicting people of sin and in helping them to be converted to God. How does the Holy Spirit help people become Christians? That's really what we're asking. God is not willing that any should perish. He wants everyone to know him to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 verse 9, God wants all men to be saved. 1 Timothy 2 verses 4 and 5. So how does God, how does the Holy Spirit cause that to happen? How are people made into Christians? And what is the Spirit's role in that? Let's start this evening with this. I don't like starting a Bible study this way, but in this case, I think it's kind of necessary. There is a popular false teaching about the answer to this question, and I'll just briefly outline it for you. Not, about, not a lot of scripture under this point because scripture doesn't support these things. But this is a popular false teaching. It's called Calvinism. If that's not a, a word you're familiar with, it comes from a man named John Calvin about 500 years ago. And John Calvin, very intelligent man, very studied in the scriptures. John Calvin developed a framework or a system for looking at the Bible and interpreting and understanding what the Bible is teaching us about ourselves and about who God is. And what John Calvin ended up doing was overemphasizing God's role in all of this and underemphasizing man's responsibility. And here's basically in a nutshell what John Calvin and those who believe his teachings would believe about the Spirit's work in conversion and conviction. 
John Calvin began with the assumption that people are born with a sinful nature. That when you're born, you have inherited a sinful nature from Adam and there's nothing you can do about that. And because you have a sinful nature, there is no way that you in and of yourself could ever decide that you want to obey the gospel. You can't do it. You have a sinful nature and therefore we are incapable in and of ourselves of turning to God. This is what John Calvin and those who follow his teachings would argue. That because people have a sinful nature, because we are born with inherited sin from Adam, that we are incapable of turning to God. Even if you said, I wanna be a Christian, you can't. Not unless something special happens to you. The special thing that has to happen to you is, according to Calvinism, is that the Holy Spirit must come and he must first regenerate your nature. They'll use passages like from Ezekiel and talk about how the spirit comes and takes the heart of stone out of us and gives us a heart of flesh, how the spirit regenerates us. And basically it boils down to this. You can't decide you wanna become a Christian. You can't decide that this is something you're interested in. You're just walking down the street one day and boom, the spirit zaps you regenerates your heart and now because he gives you a different nature, you didn't choose this, because he gives you a different nature, you now can respond to the gospel. You now will want to respond to the gospel. It's called unconditional election. The idea that the spirit chooses you, God chooses you to be saved. Some people are lost, some people are saved, and God is the one who's making that choice on an individual basis in everybody's life. And the people that God chooses to be saved, the Holy Spirit comes to them at some point in their lives, and the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates them, and that all has to precede conviction of sin and conversion to Christ. And therefore, people need a quote unquote conversion experience. And a lot of times when you hear people in the religious world talk about how they became a Christian, they'll talk about things like, I just had a very strong sense of the Spirit's presence. I had a very strong sense that God was speaking to me or that God was doing something for me and in me. And he took my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh instead. Question, what's wrong with all that? About everything is wrong with that. I don't know where to start in trying to deal with all of those things, but I'm giving you this brief outline because this is what many of our religious friends believe about how somebody becomes a Christian. They're basically saying this, you can't choose to become a Christian and I can't choose to become a Christian. The Holy Spirit's the one that chooses whether I become a Christian or not. He's gotta come to me, he's gotta regenerate my heart and therefore I can now respond to God's word and God's will. And they would say that somebody who's interested in becoming a Christian, somebody who's interested in obeying the gospel, they'd say, well, you must have had a regeneration experience. The spirit must have done something to you prior to this conversation because you wouldn't want to obey the gospel if this hadn't happened to you. This is Calvinism. And this is what it's saying about the Holy Spirit and his work in our conversion. Let me turn this around for just a moment. This is what our brethren sometimes, if you read our brethren's writings historically in, in churches of Christ, if you read our brethren's writings about the work of the Holy Spirit, you'll often see the phrase direct operation. 
or miraculous operation of the Holy Spirit or the direct and miraculous operation of the Holy Spirit on somebody's heart. Does that sound familiar to some of you? If you've read much of what our brethren have written, they'll talk a lot about the Spirit does not work directly and miraculously on someone's heart. Why are they writing those words? Why are they using that terminology? Because of that, that's why. They're saying that doesn't happen. In a direct, miraculous, supernatural way, the Spirit does not work on someone's heart according to that doctrine. And when you see that terminology, that's why that terminology is in so many articles and books that our brethren have written. And they are right, our brethren are. The idea that the Bible teaches that anyone who wants to understand God's word can do so, and you don't need the spirit to first take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, they're correct in teaching that. But this is where that terminology originates. They're countering the teachings of Calvinism and what it's done in trying to distort what the Bible really teaches about the Spirit's work in converting people to become Christians. So what does the Bible teach? I'm glad you asked, this is a lot more fun. Let's talk about what the Bible does teach instead of what the Bible doesn't teach, okay? But it's good to have that framework and to know this is where many, many people, the majority of people I would say, religiously speaking, that you'll encounter, they'll have some form or some idea that that's how the Spirit works in converting people and helping them to become Christians. What does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches a couple of things. Number one, the Bible teaches that converting power, if you or I or anybody else is going to become a Christian, converting power is in one place and one place alone. It's, in, it's located in the Word of God. There is no alternative. You do not find people who are Christians anywhere who have not first come into contact with and understood and submitted to and obeyed the Word of God. Converting power is found in the Word. There is no other way for people to become Christians. Look at a number of passages with me this evening. I'm just putting them on the screen because they're coming at you fast and furious. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Spirit wants us to listen to God. He wants us to turn to God. He wants us to be convicted of our sin and be converted, to turn away from our sin and to turn to God. That's what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. How does He accomplish that? With His sword, the Word of God. Why do we teach and preach the Word of God? Because this is where converting power is found. A couple of other passages, well, several other passages actually. Psalm 19 verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Bible nowhere says that the Spirit has to come to you and regenerate your heart apart from the Word in a direct and miraculous way. It never says that. It says the law of the Lord, the Word of God, is how people learn about their sin and how they learn what it means to turn to God. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's a message, it's the Word of God. For it, the message, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Brothers and sisters and friends, the Spirit put the power to change your life in the Word. He put the power to change all those people outside this building to change their lives. The power's in the Word. The power's there and it's a tremendous power. It's a life-changing power. If people will listen to the message and obey the message, it'll change their lives, it'll change ours. 
In John chapter eight, verse 31, Jesus says to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. How does one become a disciple of Jesus? By listening to his teachings, by abiding in those teachings. And when they do that, the truth makes us free from our sin, from our slavery to sin. It sets us free to serve God. First Peter 1, 22 and 23, Peter's writing to his brethren, thinking about their conversion experience. Listen carefully to what he says. He says, you brethren have purified your souls through obeying the truth through the spirit. Listen to what those people did 2000 years ago. They heard the message, they obeyed it. And by the way, it's the spirit's message. When you read the pages of scripture, you're reading the words that the Holy Spirit has given to us to help us to know how we can become a Christian, what sin is like, and what it means to turn away from sin and to turn to God. Peter goes on to say, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The spirit put the word, the, the power to convert people in the word. Over and over and over, the Bible makes this point. James 1.18, of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Talking about conversion. He's talking about people becoming Christians, learning about their sin, turning away from their sin and turning to God. It's the word of truth that causes that to happen when we listen and submit and obey. Acts 11, 13 and 14, you remember Cornelius, the first Gentile convert? Here's what Peter says as he's recounting what happened with Cornelius. You mean Cornelius became a Christian, Peter? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And let me tell you what God said to him. He saw an angel standing in his house, Acts 11:13, 13. And the angel said, Cornelius, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. And Simon, let me tell you what he's gonna do. He's gonna tell you words which you and, your old, and all your household can do, can listen to, to be saved. Words by which you can be saved. There's a consistent pattern throughout all of the New Testament that demonstrates that the way people become Christians is not by having a miraculous supernatural experience with the Holy Spirit and then they can obey the gospel, but rather by listening to the message that's preached. And some people listen and some people don't. And it's up to you to decide what you're going to do. Continuing, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then, Paul writes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Does the Holy Spirit want us to be converted? Absolutely. Does the Holy Spirit want you and me to have faith? Absolutely, without a doubt. Does the Holy Spirit want you and me to turn from our sin and to turn to God? There is no question that that's what he desires. How does he do it? How does he cause that to happen? Converting power is found in the word of God. You cannot make someone a Christian without the power of God's word. It's impossible to do. The Spirit put convicting and converting power in the message. That is extremely important for us to understand. 
Because in all of our evangelistic efforts, think about this, in all that we try to accomplish as a congregation, lots of works, lots of programs, lots of personal relationships and inviting people to things like gospel meetings, for example, in all that we do as a congregation, we must keep our eye on the ball. Our eye on the ball means that we just understand and appreciate unless the message is being received, unless the message is being transmitted, unless people are hearing the message of Jesus, nobody's ever gonna become a Christian. Impossible for that to happen. Nobody ever turned to God just because there were nice and good things that happened around them. They turn to God because they hear the message and they respond to the message. The Spirit put converting power in the Word. Now, I do want to add this because the Bible sustains what I'm about to say. The Bible does not teach that the Holy Spirit zaps you and works on you directly and changes your heart and turns you into somebody who now has a nature where you can listen to the Word of God. The Bible does not teach that, but the Bible does teach this. The Bible does teach that in converting people in evangelism, God does work providentially through natural means. He does work providentially when it comes to people obeying the gospel. And let me explain what I mean by this. Converting powers in the word, exclusively in the word. Nobody's ever gonna become a Christian without the word of God, but watch this. In the book of Philemon, verses 15 and 16, look at what the inspired apostle writes about this young man, Onesimus, who's run away as a slave. And now he's been converted and is being sent back to his master, Philemon. The inspired apostle says, perhaps, Perhaps Onesimus departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. What's happening there? Here's an inspired apostle saying, I don't know exactly how circumstances transpired the way they did, but there's a possibility, he's saying, that God had something to do with this. That part of what Onesimus was doing, that God used his decision and God used the things that he was doing to help him to come into contact with somebody who knew the word so that he could become a Christian. And now he's coming back to you. He's heard the word, he's obeyed the word. And guess what? He's not just your slave, he's your brother. Providence. Do we believe that God uses providence in bringing people together today? That oftentimes in circumstances and opportunities in our lives, that some of the people that we come into contact with, that God had something to do, do we believe that may, may well be the case? Certainly might have been the case with Philemon and Onesimus. Continuing, 1 Peter 3 verses 1 and 2, here's an interesting passage. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, that is, your husband's heard the word, he knows the message, he understands what God desires, but he's not obedient to it, that he without a word may be won by the conduct of his wife when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. What's the Bible saying? That a godly lifestyle a godly example can sometimes have a softening impact as someone like a husband who's married to a Christian wife 
observes the kind of woman that he's married to and thinks about her faith and sees on a daily basis the kind of convictions that she holds, that there may well be an influence for good in his life. That's what's being contemplated there. And he may want to decide to respond to the word of God because of what he sees. Does God have something to do with that? Another passage to contemplate, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4. Paul writes to his brethren, continue, brethren, earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I also am in chains, that I may make it manifest as I also ought to speak. What's Paul doing? He's telling his brethren, I want you to pray for me. And I want you to pray especially this. I want you to pray for open doors. I want you to pray for opportunities. I want you to pray for God to work in people's lives so that they have an opportunity to hear the word. Where's the convicting power? It's found in the word. Prayer never yet saved anybody. It's the word that saves people. But can prayer be used by God as he answers prayer to help people to have opportunities to hear the word? Absolutely. And as you think about what's being said here in scripture, God working providentially through natural means, God wants people to be saved. And in his providence and in his orchestration of events in our lives in natural ways, nothing supernatural, nothing direct, not coming to you and saying, look, you're gonna become a Christian whether you like it or not, nothing like that, but God orchestrating meetings and opportunities. Let me just think about it. In conversion, God can use circumstances and opportunities, godly living and godly examples and even the prayers of the saints. God can use those things to help people to have opportunities to hear the message. And so, while conversion power, convicting people of sin and converting them to become Christians, that power is found exclusively in the word of God. People will not become Christians without the word. It can also be said that God works indirectly, providentially through natural means to help people in response to prayer, to help people as a way of working through people with a godly influence, to help people in circumstances and various opportunities to have opportunities to hear the message. I believe with all my heart, there are people that I have studied with over the years. I can't explain how we met except to just say it must've been providential. I can't prove it. That's the way providence is. I can't prove it. I can't open the Bible and say, okay, here's where it says that John was going to meet so-and-so on such and such an occasion. But I know this, I believe God had something to do with it. I believe with all my heart that God works and answers prayers. I've been praying for the gospel meeting starting next week. Have you been praying for that? Been praying for friends and neighbors to come and to visit? Why? Because if they come and they visit, if God opens doors for the word, then the word can maybe have an effect on those people's hearts and they can listen to what God's message is and they can obey God's message. Why are we praying that way if we don't believe that God somehow answers those kinds of prayers? He works providentially through natural means to help people to have opportunities to hear and to obey his word. Now, people may do something with those opportunities that just says, I'm not going to respond to God. I'm not going to listen to his word. That's on them. But God does work in that way. 
And three truths for all of us to contemplate this evening. Three truths when it comes to the Spirit's role in converting, in convicting people of sin and helping them to become Christians. Truth number one, hearing and obeying the gospel is absolutely essential to everybody's conversion. There is no other way people will ever be saved except through the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You gotta hear the message, you gotta believe the message, you've gotta obey the message. Luke 8 verse 11, Jesus said, the seed that changes people and makes them into disciples, it's the word of God. Acts 8, 35 and 36, Philip climbed up into that chariot. By the way, how did Philip get out there into the wilderness with the Ethiopian nobleman? It was God's angel that told him to go and to find that man. God brought those two together, but then Philip had to climb up in the chariot, didn't he? And he had to open his mouth and preach Jesus to the Ethiopian. And when he did, the Ethiopian said, see here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? He'd heard a message and he was ready to obey it. God brought the opportunity, they preached the message and the man obeyed the message. Hearing and obeying the gospel message is essential to every conversion. 1 John 5, 13, John writes, I have written these things to you, my brethren, that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know you have eternal life when you can point to it in scripture and say, this is what the Bible commands me to do and this is what I've done. I know I am in a right relationship with God because I've done what the spirit taught me to do in the word. It's essential to every conversion. Second truth, in conjunction with the message, providence, prayer, and godly living are used by God to bring the lost to Christ. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If salt has lost its flavor, what's it good for? If a light's hidden under the bushel, what's it good for? Jesus asks, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus did not say, let them see your good works so that they can become Christians. He didn't say that. He said, let them see your good works so that they can glorify your father in heaven. The idea is that by seeing a godly example, by seeing a Christ-like example, people will want to know more about the message that has changed our lives. God uses those things in conjunction with his word to help people understand what it means to be a Christian. Third truth. The Holy Spirit wants you, wants me to obey the gospel and be saved. Revelation 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. God's invitation. You know, at the end of sermons, we always offer an invitation. We sing an invitation song and that should never become just routine to us because every single time the message of God is preached, God is inviting people through the message. He's inviting people through the word, come to me. I want you to have a relationship with me. The Holy Spirit wants you to turn away from your sin and turn to God and he's given you the instructions. He's given you the path. He's given you the message that'll cause that to happen. The gospel is God's power for salvation for everyone who believes. Are you someone who believes in Jesus Christ and you're ready to turn your life over to him? You're ready to obey the gospel by being baptized in water for the remission of your sins. If you're ready to make that commitment this evening, if you need to respond and ask for prayers, whatever your need is, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?